feel like that should be our theme song. Growing little by little. Yes, there are times when we get stretched and we may take a little bit bigger step, but even when you kind of look at that in perspective of a year or 10 years or whatever, it it's just little by little, we're growing. God is doing something in us and through us. And so uh, that's that's excellent. Thank Thank you guys for encouraging us this morning. All right, we are uh, continuing our study on the kingdom of God. We began our study of the kingdom with a big picture view of God's eternal plan of a forever kingdom. I know that some of you are our guests today, and we appreciate you being here, and maybe some of you have not been to uh, been able to, to come every week, and so some of this is going to be new to you, but I'm just going to give you a brief overview uh, as far as kind of talking about what the kingdom is about. The Lord chose to enact this plan of his kingdom through Abraham, a man called to follow him and made him a chosen people uh, through his descendants. With God's promise to Abraham, he said that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. Sometimes I forget to hit this review button here, but anyway. uh, Genesis chapter 12, last part of verse 3 says, And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We traced this covenant, this promise that God made through the scriptures all the way to Jesus, who was the Christ, the chosen one of God. So he is the one that was promised not only through Abraham, but we had talked about through David. And so Jesus Christ is Abraham's descendant that brought the blessing of eternal life to all the different peoples of the earth. We know obviously that he's God's son, but as far as his, his human side, he came through Abraham. So Jesus then describes, described and established God's eternal kingdom. That was his purpose in coming. And as we begin our study today, we need to conf- I need to confess that I did not envision our study of the kingdom to go quite as long as it has. Uh, it kind of came from talking about the kingdom references when we were looking at uh, Christ's triumphal entry and then the resurrection. And uh, as, as I looked at that, I said, you know, let, let's put this in a bigger context. And so we kind of, again, looked at where that was coming from in the Old Testament. And now we've been looking at what Christ has been saying. But I think this served several purposes. Uh, one of which is, as, as we think about the benefits of understanding the kingdom of God, one is the kingdom is the central theme of Scripture. That's important for us to remember. So when Christ is talking about either the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, they're the same thing, he's really talking about eternal life. He's talking about the the time that we're going to be with him. He's talking about heaven. Secondly, the ultimate purpose of God's kingdom is to glorify God, glorify himself through the redemption of a particular people for his name. That's what his kingdom is really all about. We, We... establish the fact that it's not about just saving us. That's, that's part of it. But the absolute bigger picture is that God is, is going to be glorified through that. Amen. It's about his kingdom, not our kingdom. We're a part of it, but it's his kingdom. And then lastly, and again, there's many other things, but these are the things I want us to key on. The kingdom of God unifies the Old and New Testaments. The word testament there is another word for covenant, promise, So the old covenant that God made with his people was fulfilled in Christ. And we know that that was all pointing toward the kingdom. Christ comes, he initiates the kingdom. And then eventually, as we see in the book of Revelation, that kingdom is finally going to come. There is the present aspect of us being in the kingdom as his followers. But there's that future aspect of being completely, totally fulfilled when all is under Christ's authority. And so that is, it's a unifying factor in that really, you know, let me put it this way. So many times you might hear people saying, you know, God was different in the Old Testament. No, he wasn't. You know, God, God was judgmental in the Old Testament. Have you read Revelation? <laughs> now, I'm not joking about judgment. I'm joking about the perspective, Okay. We say, well, God is gracious and merciful in the New Testament. Again, turn some pages in the Old Testament. Look at his graciousness. Look at his mercy. 
it's, it's, it's encapsulated in that word loving kindness or words like it. And so as we're considering what Jesus did for us, again, it's simply a continuation and a fulfillment of this kingdom that God was establishing and building and will, again, have it come to fruition. So then what I want us to do today, today's text is Matthew 5, where Christ begins the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's account of this sermon covers three chapters. Chapters 5 through 7. It is the beginning of Christ's preaching ministry. And so what I want to do is I want to connect this sermon with our study of the parables that we recently went over. And, and in some ways, we've kind of retrofitted this. You know, we looked at the big picture of the kingdom, and now we're actually going down to the, to the smaller, you know, more minute aspects of it. Um, but it's just the way it worked. But anyway... Um, what follows the Sermon on the Mount is a series of confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders. And, and we're familiar with some of those stories. Uh, there were arguments over uh, Jesus' miraculous healings, the, the fact that he healed on the wrong day of the week on their Sabbath, and they called it work. You know, how, how you have this, this man who had a, a withered hand, and, and God heals him, or any number of things, and then they say, well, but you worked. <laughs> yeah, I did, but not the kind of work you're talking about, right? And so, so anyway, just, just, can I just say dumb things like that, that they argued about, the technicalities, and they were their technicalities, not God's, right? And then it, that kind of goes over to the other subject, which is the different laws that they had added to God's word over time. That was where the conflicts took place between Christ and the, the, that present religious leadership. During the same time frame these confrontations are taking place, Jesus is privately teaching his disciples. We know that that continues later on as well, but, but that's what's happening. So these spiritual differences that we just talked about came to a head in Matthew chapter 12, when the Jewish leaders publicly denounce Jesus and declare that his power to do miraculous works, his power to heal, came from Satan himself. I mean, I, I don't know how much more wrong they can be, but also how much more rude and caustic they can be about the ministry of Christ. So this brings us to our timeline, our timeline to Matthew chapter 13, which is pretty much where we just exited from, but that's when Jesus began to speak mostly in parables. He switched from speaking extremely plainly to now speaking in parables, and what he said in that context was, this is for those who have the ability to hear, to really understand what I'm saying, because it's being kept from those who are rebellious, all right? So that's kind of where we're at. So now back to the Sermon on the Mount. This beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount is often called the Beatitudes. And Beatitude in Latin simply means blessing. That's where it got its name. So it's a fancy way of saying the blessings, right? Jesus teaches that a, ble that a blessed people exhibit certain character qualities and that those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's why we're talking about here the, the character qualities that we see of people in the kingdom. And so as you saw, uh, as we read a little bit earlier, uh, Jesus is speaking on a mountainside. We know that he also began speaking parables, if you remember. He pulled back from the seaside and was speaking from a boat. So now he's speaking to a large crowd, which is obviously previous to what we talked about recently. And he's speaking out to a, a group of people, and he's, he's on a hillside. So again, he's projecting He's, he's being able to speak to a whole bunch of people, and that is what is going on here. And So he begins, and let me just read for you the first part here. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. And so that's where it, it begins. And we start off with the idea of the character of the kingdom, poor in spirit. And that comes from the first verse there as he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I did have someone ask me recently, you highlight certain things in, in the verses and in some of the things that you have up here. What, what's that for? 
it's part of it. Usually yellow was the theme, but but it's partly just to differentiate between things and highlight them. So take it for what it's worth. But, you know, sometimes it just helps us to to pull out what's what's most important, so to speak. So as we're thinking about this idea of being poor in spirit, this doesn't refer to someone who has low self-esteem. Okay, I, I know that that's actually a big thing these days. You know what I mean about people's self-esteem and how we need to to you know, enhance it and all these other things. But the word here refer refers to uh, poverty to the point of being dependent on others in order to live. This is this is an an extreme poverty. All right. Well, this is poor in spirit. So poor in spirit then is how we should see ourselves before God. We are spiritually bankrupt and in a desperate situation. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, every person must acknowledge that they cannot enter it on their own spiritual merits. Because they, we, I, were spiritually bankrupt. So last week we concluded our study of the kingdom of the parable the kingdom the parables related to it we concluded that with Ephesians 2 8 through 10 what we basically said was we can't work to earn salvation but we do good works because we are saved and that was primarily from Ephesians 2 10 so what I want to do is I want to just put this this uh, verse up again it says for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast so when something is this clear, and, and, and folks, I, I'm not trying to be abrasive here or anything like that. I'm just trying to kind of say it like it is. One either has to be misguided or arrogant to think that we can gain eternal life through our own goodness, or as some may hold today, through our own brand of spirituality. All right? The scriptures obviously go on to say in another place, that Christ is, and Jesus himself said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Amen. And so not only do we only come to God the Father through Christ, but we only come to him in faith. Not with our own merits. Not with what our resumes, where we look at our lives and say, man, look at all the great things that I've done. All right? It is impossible. And so it's someone who is poor in spirit, who, who's, who's bankrupt in their mindset, right, and understanding who they are before God, that enters the kingdom. Now, when we belong to the kingdom of God, we also need to continue to have a spiritual dependency upon the Lord. It's not like we receive Christ and then, <laughs> I can do all things. Well, we can through Christ, right? I, I can follow the Lord in every way he desires through Christ. It's still not us and us alone. And so there is still a dependency, a dependency on the Lord, a dependency on the guidance of the Spirit. And Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17 illustrates this very well. It says, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Let me pause here. Does this sound like a salvation verse? No, it's not. This, this is someone who has a relationship with the Lord. Such as love your salvation. Okay? But it goes on to say, but I am poor and needy. And notice, David makes it really personal. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So what David is describing is this same spiritual condition, which is not a bad spiritual condition. It's, it's, it's this neediness, this poverty of spirit. But while he's doing that, he declares that God is his help and his rescue. His help comes from the Lord. And I, I do believe this is for his continual walk with him. Now, it can be very hard to admit 
when we need someone's help. Isn't that right? And, and I know it's Father's Day, especially guys, right? D- don't give me directions. I know where I'm going, okay? I know that's, that's stereotypical, but it's true, okay? I can get this done. I can do this. I can lift that, right? All these other different things. But we all tend to be that way. Those who are spiritually needy cannot meet their own need. In other words, we have that mindset, we have that truth in us that we we can't do it on our own. They are dependent upon someone else to meet their spiritual need. And so humility must be a part of those who are poor in spirit. There needs to be a humbleness that we we have to have God's guidance in our lives. We, 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 We derive our power from him and our ability to do what he wants from him. But what does Jesus say that they possess? If you recall the verse, he says that they are going to receive, they're going to ha- they have the kingdom of heaven. In other words, eternal life. This isn't a vague reference to salvation because we need to remember eternal life and the kingdom of heaven are interchangeable. You can't have one without the other. And so as he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about those who are in the kingdom. It's those who are going to live forever in Christ because of Christ. And so that's the promise of those who look at themselves and say, I bring nothing to the table. I am fully, wholly dependent on you. First, for salvation. And now, yes, you've given me abilities. Yes, I have responsibilities. I have things that I can do in the word of God that you've given me that I need to do, but I still, I still need to be dependent upon you. I can't do it on my own. And, and if I could just say, one of the ways that God helps to equip us is through one another, right? It's, it's clear in the scriptures. So that's what we're talking about when we're, when we're, when we're looking at this idea of, of being poor in spirit, of being needy. And again, it's hard to admit that. It's hard to really come to grips with that. But, but someone in the kingdom, they're going to understand that and they're going to live by that. And then we're told that we need to mourn over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, 4 says, for they shall be comforted. Now, I need to tell you, every study resource I have used considers the term mourning to mean mourning or sorrowing over sin. The sorrow flows from acknowledging our own spiritual poverty. It, it comes from that. In other words, understanding that we are spiritually poor causes us to mourn over our sin. Now, let me ask you, we, we've all been there, been here before, but has anyone ever thrown a party at a time of life when you're financially poor? Do you say to yourself, I am totally broke. Let's celebrate. Right? We don't do that. Oftentimes, it's a time of stress. It probably includes sadness and maybe even some shame over the condition that we might have caused our own selves, right? It's a little bit different when we're talking about spiritual things, but think about it. We're, we're spiritually needy, and we see why because of our sin, and, and it brings us some sorrow. Early in my ministry life, I, I was new at this whole self-employment tax thing. Pastors are self-employed. It's, it's actually like the law, right? So I made a terrible mistake. I did not calculate it right. And at the time of tax season, uh, uh, well, I'll use a biblical quote. I, I was found wanting, <laughs> okay? And I had to swallow my pride and ask my dad for a loan a number of years ago, but I still remember it. I paid it back, but that hung over me, right? Just that, you know, I messed up and I didn't have what I needed. I needed someone else. And, you know, it just goes against that whole self-sufficiency and everything else. 
But spiritually, we need outside help. But we can never work enough to pay it off, right? And we're not required to. So just having that in mind, let's get back to this idea of mourning. In this beatitude, Jesus is drawing from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that for you. It says, The the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And just to kind of go back to this whole idea of the whole purpose of the kingdom, what's the last line there? It's all for the glory of God. Very important for us to keep that in mind. So this part of Isaiah's prophecy began back in chapter 60. And so this lands right in the middle of the section of prophecy that he gives. It's an extensive prophecy describing God as the Savior of his people. This includes what the Messiah, the Son of God, would do for his people. So it's, it's this, you know, and sometimes back in the days of the prophets, time and all those things, you know, sometimes they're talking about things in the future, but they're, they're talking about them present tense because with the Lord, it's already happened, right? right? And so some of this is looking ahead to what Messiah would fulfill. So there's an obvious connection here between what we read here and what we just saw in Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about blessed are those who are uh, who mourn. Now there are two takeaways we can link to these two uh, passages. First, we know the people are actively looking for their Messiah to come. We're now talking about in the time of Jesus as they're hearing this. And he, he, they want relief from the Roman occupation and oppression that they're under. So, so they're looking for that. So Christ's audience was familiar with Messiah's message. I'm sorry, with Isaiah's message, recognizing that Jesus was referring to this prophecy. They recognized that. Okay? Let me just say that again. As they're hearing what Jesus is saying, this very simple line, their minds would have gone back to what we just read. This would have been familiar because they were just keyed into, ah, we're waiting for the Messiah. We need for him to come. If you remember, even the Samaritan woman, not, 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 a, not a Jewish woman, but a Samaritan woman was saying, we know the Messiah is coming. And the other thing is the short line is just bursting at the seams with meaning that we can better understand by knowing this context. In other words, this little line that we have, when we take all of what Jesus said here, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. And then he goes on to say, what are those good tidings? A lot of what he says here is comfort for those who mourn. There's an interesting parallel to mourning over sin in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Now, before we read this account, I want to bring to mind that in Paul's first letter, he had to address a number of problems that the Corinthian church was dealing with. Um, There was infighting and there was immorality and a number of other things that were taking place. And the worst was two people who were in an immoral situation and really the church kind of almost prided itself in the fact that they were tolerant of them. Okay? So Paul describes how the people responded in his second letter in chapter 7. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to give you the the greater context here, and then we're going to emphasize a few of these verses. 2 Corinthians 7 again. We're talking about him having to write a a pretty rough letter to uh, a church that was that was not doing it right. Okay, a number of issues in their church. 
And he writes this. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by, by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation of which he was comforted in you. When you told us, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now, we see here Paul's comfort, but that's coming from the Lord. That's a little bit different than what we're talking about. But I want you to see the context here. He's writing a very emotional, heartfelt letter to these people. And then he starts in verse 8 again. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, meaning his previous one, I do not regret it. Though I did, re- though I did regret it, meaning I didn't want to make you sad. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. And all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And again, we're referring to that ugly matter that he had written about. So just as we highlight this passage, right? He's talking about their sorrow and he's talking about a a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that, that's, that's that first aspect of it that we're talking about, right? That repentance, really, that, that, that brings salvation. But then there's also that sorrow that we have over present sin that can take place in our lives. When we repent of our sins... When we have that change of heart and mind and we say, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm going to follow Christ. We're really cleansed from all of our sins, right? But at the same time, there was this clearing that had to take place from then their contemporary sin. The the sin that they had done after their salvation. They, They had to repent of that too. And so there's that present aspect of mourning over sin. They were sorrowful. You know, they, they were kind of just doing their thing. And the problem was it was their thing and not the Lord's. So they get this letter from Paul and it saddened them. It, it broke their hearts. And it wasn't because they, they had um, somehow, you know, fought, failed Paul or that Paul was upset with them. What do we see here? It, 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 was, it was a godly sorrow. They, they, were, they were cut to the heart spiritually. They understood we sinned against God. We've got to do something about this. And so as a body of believers, they actually had this change of heart and mind, and, and, they, and they got back to doing the things that were right. Now, there's another aspect of mourning, which is the sorrow over sin in the world. Sour over sin in the world is different than being oblivious to it or tolerating it, right? And it's radically different than approving of it or participating in it. We are grieved by the sin and also the consequences of the sin that we see in the world. But I want us to make sure that we're seeing what Christ is saying accurately. 
Is Jesus saying that those in the kingdom are to be constantly weighed down with guilt and shame over their own sin? No. No, that's not what he's saying. As a matter of fact, we see Paul really emphasizing the fact that it's, it's when we sin, we sorrow. But there was, there was something joyful that took place as a result when they turned away from it. What about living in a sinful world? Is our sorrow over the sin around us supposed to constantly overwhelm our emotions? And folks, let me just back that up with another question. Does it sometimes? Do do you look around at what's happening and just feel weighed down? There is a fine line between spiritual sensitivity and spiritual paralysis. We aren't supposed to dwell on sin, either ours or the world's. That is not where our focus is to be. Instead, when we sin, it should trigger true sorrow over that sin, which should then lead us to turning away from that sin. Repentance. This sorrow or sorrow or mourning is based on both sinning against God and, again, the consequences of that sin. It's not either or. We, we can feel very badly. We can grieve over the fact that we've not only offended God, but then the results sometimes that take place as, when, when we do that. And again, getting back to, the, to observing the world. When we observe sin in the world, our hearts should be sad, but we should not slip into despair or hopelessness. In other words, when we see the world being the world, it's going to affect us. But it's not supposed to just continuously affect us. And again, we need to emphasize, this is how a citizen of the kingdom will see sin. We don't condone it. We don't participate in it. But when we do sin, it hurts. It's something that that hits us really at the very core of our being, and, and we don't want it to be a part of us anymore. We want to get rid of it. We want to repent of that. And even when we're observing sin around us, it doesn't overwhelm us. What's the promise? The promise here is comfort. They will be comforted. Our comfort is not complete yet. We need to acknowledge that because we will sin and we will bear witness of sin in the world. But one day our comfort will be complete in God's kingdom. We will be free from all shame and regrets, all consequences of sin and all sorrow related to sin. Folks, I I don't know about you, well, I probably do know about you. You probably feel the same way. And it's that, man, I can't wait for that day to come. You know, a lot of times we talk about the, the consequences of sin in general, right? Our aches and pains, the fact that, you know, I know some of you young people are like, hey, I'm doing just fine. But those of us who have some miles on us, <laughs> we're ready for some relief, all right? But, but in reality, we can all say, life is not easy. Right? Not for anybody. But the life as a believer, there is that extra layer, which is, hey, there's some work in doing what God wants us to do. Yes, we depend upon him, but again, there's those responsibilities. We're, we're, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to separate ourselves from all of that. And so this idea of comfort, folks, uh, imagine not having those thoughts come through your head when someone says or does something because they're probably not, not probably, they're not going to sin against you in heaven anyway. But imagine not having this default to our selfishness. Imagine not having to fight against that anymore. That's the promise that we have. The, the, the comfort, the relief from all of that. Now, we can experience that to a degree today. We can. We should experience that. We see that the Corinthian believers did. 
But let's also keep in mind that that comfort is coming. So let's transition ourselves over then to the next character quality, which is the character of the kingdom is gentle or gentleness. Gentleness is treating others with kindness and tenderness. Now, we have looked at this subject fairly recently as we went through the book of Colossians. This is one of the character qualities that came through that we are to put on in relation to putting on Christ, in relation to living our lives according to what he wants us to do. But the verse here in Matthew 5, verse 5 tells us, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that word meek there means gentle. So what I want us to do is, is just look through a few verses here that relate to this idea of gentleness and, and, uh, and kind of let those teach us. The first one comes from Titus as Paul charges him to remind all those under his teaching to do this. He said, remind them to be subject to rulers. This is Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So one of the key character qualities that Paul was instructing Timothy to teach his people was to, to, to be a gentle person. Again, going back to, uh, to, to what that means, to show kindness and tenderness toward others. James tells us that our good works are to be done with a gentle spirit. James three thirteen, Who is wise and understanding among you? Okay, let's just let that sink in for a minute. We don't want to miss the context here. Who is living in a wise way? And by the way, James talks a lot about wisdom, but who is living in a wise way? Who is making good spiritual decisions, right? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So even if they have that wisdom, that wisdom comes with humility, comes with gentleness, comes with a gentle spirit. And then, uh, let me just say this, in the context, James is explaining the danger of the tongue and the difficulty of controlling what we say. I think we can all relate to the fact there are times when the words go out and we really want to be able to reel them back in, but they're gone. They've left the station. And they're going to land somewhere. And they're going to have their effect. And sometimes we know it. Like It's almost like they're still echoing. We're like, oh, did I just say And I'm just not talking about, you know, just saying something, not saying it quite the right way. Okay, I'm saying that sometimes we're just mean or we're too abrupt or we're insensitive or any number of things like that. Verse 13 comes immediately after this context. So a person of wisdom and understanding will be known for their gentle conduct. And when we are gentle, we are actually patterning, patterning our lives after Christ. And again, we've talked about this recently. But chapter, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 say this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And... and we look at this passage a lot when it comes to what Jesus is offering. And, and, and we rightfully should, right? Again, we're talking about that burden that we carry, really going even back to that, to that poor in spirit, that mourning type of attitude, right? He says, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How does Jesus describe himself? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and I'm humble. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we understand the character of Christ and we understand some of the things that he said and did on this earth, we can also understand and even if we look at Paul's life or others, meekness is not weakness. It takes spiritual strength, willfulness, and even mindfulness to be a gentle person. 
right? There, there, there's, some, there's some thought that goes behind it. And that goes back to this idea, again, of, of wisdom, of taking what we know, making right choices as a result, and living appropriately. It takes some effort to be gentle. And again, I'm not picking on us, guys. It's just a reality. We want to apply Scripture where it is, especially for us, right? Now, I know moms can do the same thing, right? A child hurts themselves, you know, hey, get over it, right? You know, sometimes you're there. But who is probably the person between mom and dad that's going to say that, right? It's probably dad. Yeah, shake it off. You'll be all right. The bleeding will stop eventually. <laughs> you get the idea. So, so it, it's not necessarily our go-to set of emotions. And it's partly just simply how we're built. But this is the beautiful thing about the scriptures. It doesn't matter who's coming to them. We all have the opportunity, <laughs> but the ability through Christ to change, to identify ourselves more and more closely with him. And so regardless of our gender in here, regardless of, of where we are on the whole gentleness scale, that's where we need to be. And what is the promise? The meek or the gentle will inherit the earth. Wow. Now, there's a passage that, that really aligns with this. Psalm 37, 11. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Man, is that a comforting verse, folks? It goes, obviously, is right there with what Christ said. He could have easily just drawn right from this. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. See, that's the result of inheriting. But what does inherit the earth mean? Okay. We're going to take over the world. Well, that's not what it means. It's talking about Christ coming back and instituting his literal earthly kingdom. And we're going to be inheritors with him of that. <laughs> it's going to be ours. It's going to be ours because of what he's done for us. But the character quality that we need to show is the same one that he shows, which is this idea of being gentle, of being gentle. And what is the result? We're going to delight ourselves in an abundance of peace. Man. And I'm not saying that, you know, your house is some kind of train wreck or something like that, but could your home use an abundance of peace? Could your workplace use an abundance of peace? How about your neighborhood? i got to be careful how detailed I get here, but... We were talking to one neighbor, and we don't know all of our neighbors real well yet, and they were talking about another neighbor and how nasty they were. And they're not the only person that's talked about this neighbor. There's been multiple neighbors that tell us, every one of them is like, this guy, nah, he's a nasty guy. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that guy in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? so, but, but even in neighborhoods, right? Boy, an abundance of peace would be nice. So, so now let's... Uh, apply that to our lives yes we can have peace right here now we can enjoy that but man there is there is a peace that is to come that that we i just don't think we can comprehend it again it's 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 that what is what is peace it's 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 a ceasing of hostilities sin is a hostility it's against us all right so let's let's kind of wrap this up here what have we seen so far? What we've seen so far is that God measures success much differently than the world. Now, folks, we have more to go. So our, our conclusion is going to be a little short this week because we have, we have more to look at. We're only partway through this passage. The world says that you, can, you only live once, so get all you can out of life. Enrich yourself in any way possible. Right? That's the American way. Money, power, Intellectual pursuits, sinful pleasures, even life experiences, right? 
What's, what's the thing that we always talk about today? Got to fill my bucket list, right? I, I, there's these experiences I need to check off so that my life is complete. Now, I'm not saying that some of these things aren't. Let's put this we're, we're talking about for selfish purposes, right? I'll, I'll just say it like that. So that's what the world says. Christ our King says, acknowledge that you are bankrupt. That's the opposite of enriching ourselves in the here and now. It's the total opposite. The natural man seeks to suppress any guilt or shame over his sin. Right? We call it something else. We medicate it. Whatever, whatever we want to do, we are going to suppress what God says it is. Because we don't want to face it as the natural man. But those who are in Christ's kingdom mourn over their sin and seek both forgiveness and repentance. That's the initial salvation part of it. Or we turn away from our sin during our Christian life when we have offended the Lord. The world preaches a twisted form of kindness centered on condoning sin and explaining away its consequences. That we just simply accept people where they're at. Do, do what you want. Do what feels good. Whatever. Children of the kingdom lead a life characterized by gentleness that doesn't compromise truth. This gentleness and kindness is even shown to those who offend and persecute us. Totally different perspective. Totally different outcomes. Right? Because those who have these character qualities, again, what we said was, Jesus is not um, defining the kingdom He's describing the kingdom. And right now he's describing the character of someone who is a part of it. But what do we receive? We receive the kingdom. We receive the comfort that goes along with that kingdom. Folks, God already has blessed us. If you are in his kingdom today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has already blessed you you know, the scripture tells with, with, with multiple heavenly blessings. But the end result is something that we just can't fathom today. And, and, and to a degree, that's okay. But man, what's coming ought to motivate us to be who we're supposed to be now. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, these are not easy things. And we established right from the start here that we have to depend upon you. We're not capable in and of ourselves to save ourselves or to just serve you with our own power. And we thank you that you've not only taught us that, but you provide solutions. <laughs> you give us your word. You have given us the spirit. I remember the words of your son when he basically said, I have to go. I have to go because that's the plan. And then I'm going to send the comforter. So we thank you. We thank you for the one who now resides in us and guides us and does comfort us. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the, the comfort, the peace that is coming. But, Lord, we so appreciate the fact that our, our fight with you right now is over. Yes, we're still fighting off sin and sometimes more successfully than others. But I pray, Lord, that we will keep your kingdom in view and live, live like we're part of it. That we'll sorrow when we blow it. But we'll, we'll turn around and, and, and respond appropriately to that. Lord, we're anticipating some other great things to learn 
and to put into practice that you told us about. We've seen the big picture of your kingdom, and now we're seeing the character qualities that are part of it. And I pray that as we exhibit those things and as we endeavor to do those things, that again, we won't forget to place ourselves under your authority and to go by your strength, but Lord, that, that we really will do what we saw in, in Corinth as they learned about what it really meant to follow you as they were corrected. That there, were, there was a zeal, there was a passion to their following of you. Lord, there might be someone here who just needs that restored today. Work in their hearts. Take that prayer that they might even be praying right now and, and just do what only you can do in their heart. Father, there might be someone here who's struggling with sin. And they know that they need to repent of that sin and they need to call it what it is. Separate themselves from it. Father, there may be someone here, as we've described things, they might conclude in their own life that they're not a part of your kingdom yet. They, they don't really, they've never placed their full faith and confidence in what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that they'll talk with one of us today, but more importantly, if, if, if they know what that means, that they'll respond to you. They'll call out to you and they'll, they'll, they'll turn from their selfishness and their sin. And that they'll receive Christ as the one who is their Lord and Savior. As the one who died for their sins. And has given them the ability to live for you. We thank you that he didn't only die, but he rose again. Promising all those who trust in him eternal life. May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.